This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I hope you guys are doing great, and I thank you so much for joining me today. I am Pam Barnhill, your host, and this is going to be a fun show. I am talking to Jen McIntosh from the blog Wildflowers and Marbles. Jen is a blogger that I've read for a very long time. She's done Morning Basket for about 10 years now, and yes, she really does call it that. And she always puts together really fabulous Morning Basket plans and really fabulous book list. And so that's what I'm talking to Jen a little bit about today. Now, we also get into some of the ins and outs of doing morning time with a wide age range of kids. And what do you do about teens who might be a little reluctant to do morning time? And she has some really awesome advice. Now, before we get into the interview, I wanted to let you guys know that I actually have a second podcast that I do. Your Morning Basket is my second podcast. And then I started with the Homeschool Snapshots podcast, and I that one I've been doing a little bit longer. And if you like interviews with homeschooling moms like Jen, the one we have on today, you will really enjoy the Homeschool Snapshots podcast. So I just wanted to make you aware of that. In that podcast, I interview homeschooling moms every other week, and there are a lot of fun interviews, and you can find that one in Stitcher or on iTunes as well. Let's get on with this homeschooling mom interview and enjoy the conversation with Jen McIntosh. Jen McIntosh is a homeschooling mom of five children, ranging in age from 18 down to two. Her family follows the Charlotte Mason method of homeschooling, rich in books, nature, and their Catholic faith. Her blog, Wildflowers and Marbles, has been an inspiration to many, including me, for the past eight years. Her learning space, planning posts, and her step-by-step help for creating a considered book list provide homeschool moms with practical advice for the day-to-day. Welcome, Jen. Hi. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you're going to join me today and talk a little bit about morning time. I'm thrilled to talk with you about morning time. It's actually one of my favorite things about home education and sort of has been surprising the number of blessings that have come out of it over the years. Okay, well, I just want to clear up for our listeners. You do what I'm calling morning time, but you actually call it morning basket in your home. Is that right? Right, because when we began this, I actually, I mean, blogging and the internet was really just sort of taking off. And I I didn't really, I wasn't taking my cues from anyone. I actually was just thinking, hmm, I think I'd like to do this. Because my kids are, you know, my my little kids are getting bigger and I kind of want to anchor the day somewhere. And I think I'm going to throw everything in a basket. So I think I'll just call this a morning basket. That's how it started. Well, I obviously thought that was a great name because I borrowed it for this podcast. (laughs) And that's (laughs) your morning basket. I think it's an awesome name. And I also have a basket that I use as well. Well, tell me a little bit about how you got started doing your morning basket work. Well, in my oldest who's graduated at this point. I think she was maybe in fourth grade and there was another child and soon another one on the way. And I began to realize that my oldest was starting to do more and more independent work. And she was kind of stepping out of our circle, if you will, of 
you know, we'd been doing so much together, reading together, and she was kind of moving on. And I began to have a little angst about this. I thought that I was concerned about the relationships and just that I wanted there to be a cemented time, an anchor point in the day where relationships could continue to develop between all my kids, big kids and little kids, and also between my children and great ideas. And so initially, I just thought, I think I'm going to come up with something that's kind of ageless in its offering, something that doesn't really have a a grade level. Um, So that means it kind of needs to be a living book, something that's worthy and speaks to any age. I mean, you can read Winnie Winnie the Pooh or Beatrix Potter to anybody and they'll sit and listen. And so I, I just came up with this list. And every year it grew kind of organically, really. And it grew into something big and beautiful. And there were years that it wasn't really great and years that it was fantastic. But it, it really just started as an idea that I wanted a common point in the day. And I thought I'd throw it in a basket and it became the morning basket. Oh, that's awesome. Well, how has it changed over the years in your home? Does it look about the same as it did when you started or has it changed somewhat? And I noticed that you said, There were years that it was great, and there were years that it wasn't so great. So can you talk a little bit about the whole journey? Yeah, I'm glad you asked, because I've posted a a little bit about the Morning Bash on my blog, and I like to post ideas, and of course I post plans, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. But I think it's really important for homeschool moms, because we're living this vocation 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to remember that we have to keep it real, and we really have to prayerfully approach these decisions, like what morning basket is going to look like, because our season of life varies. And so I would say in terms of changes over the years, it's just kind of grown almost in a way that um, you'd almost expect a low tide and a high tide to look. Sometimes it's really beautiful and rich, and we're just on a roll, and I don't have tiny little people underfoot, and so we can get lots done. And then there are other years, I would anticipate next year will be like that for me. I have a toddler running around and I have to be a little bit more flexible and a lot more simple in my in terms of my expectations. And I think over the years the biggest change for me though really has come as my kids have gotten older and I've seen the fruit from the morning basket and living it out kind of I'll say consistently, but I'll be honest and mean that it's semi consistently, which means that, you know, there are weeks, months and oh I'll admit there's probably even a year that I really neglected it. If you look at it as a whole, it yields some pretty rich and amazing fruit. And I love what has happened in terms of the older kids and the younger kids and their relationship and the examples that are set and the things that I've learned about modeling in the morning basket, modeling wonder and beauty, seeing beauty. Those are the kind of lessons that I think I've taken away after 11 or 12 years of this and been really encouraged by. Yeah, I love what you're saying about modeling. And because that's one of the big things for me as we're doing morning time, it's one of the places in the day where I don't feel like I have to be teacher. I feel like I can be fellow learner with my children because I experience the same kind of wonder at everything we're learning in there that they are. Exactly. You know, our Lord says that um, in order to enter heaven, we have to be like little children. And I think that the morning basket has shown me that I can have the eyes of a child when reading, you know, any of our books, reading poetry, learning Shakespeare. I'm a child all over again. And I think that that modeling that kind of wonder, and it's sincere, it's not forced, the kids get that. They get it. And it makes it so that it's less of a lesson and more of a relationship. I love that. 
You mentioned morning time bearing fruit and you seeing as your children are getting older, the fruit that's come out of morning time. Can you think of a specific example? Yeah, actually, I think in terms of uh, perhaps the biggest example would be the development of good habits. I always, when I talk to moms of young kids, they're weary and I get it. It's a tough time. It's a frantic time. But the investment that's made with those first kids and teaching good habits like paying attention, not interrupting when someone else is speaking, just the basic things. That investment of time yields tremendous fruit. And what I didn't expect was that the investment that I made with my oldest children would yield this tremendous fruit in terms of habit development with my younger kids. And that worked itself out in our morning basket, most of all, because you'd have an older child with a younger child. And you'd be reading aloud, I would be reading aloud, and that younger child would be a little bit antsy or maybe want to ask a question or get up and do something disruptive. And the older child could come alongside and say, oh, we're going to listen for just a few more minutes. Let's sit right here. And so that example, I didn't have to, I really didn't have to teach the younger ones. Of course, you have to reinforce good habits and, and virtue building. But the example that the older children brought to the table in terms of habits was pretty extraordinary. And then the, I would have to say the other fruit that I've seen that um, has grown so much in our morning basket is through group narrations. We follow a Charlotte Mason philosophy of education. And as part of that, we read wonderful books. And I ask the children to just tell me back. Tell me, what, what did we read about? What did you enjoy about the story? What did you hear in that? And we don't often get to do group narrations in a home setting because typically we're working one-on-one with our fourth grader or a ninth grader or whatever. But during Morning Basket, I may read a book to all the children. I might read Kate Ceridi's The Chestry Oak, and I might ask for a group narration. And just hearing each of them, they have to learn. The little children, children have to learn to wait their turn. The big kids have to show respect for a small child's opinion or their narration. And so the give and take that's there and just the 10-minute narration is just extraordinary. And I'm not sure that I could really ever know all the benefits that come out of those moments. So I guess I would say it's the habit development, the habit of living out the morning basket and the habits that the children have gathered from being surrounded by these great and beautiful ideas every morning. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, could you kind of paint a picture for us and tell us a little bit about what a typical morning time looks like in your homeschool? Sure. And of course, I have to preface it by saying there's never a typical morning basket time, and especially if there's a toddler involved. So if there's a mom that's listening that has toddlers or littles, I get it. It's morning basket is interrupted, just period. It's interrupted. So that aside, we tend to start our day with breakfast and chores, and my family, my kids are early risers. I am not. And so I guess the Lord thought it would be a great joke and a good opportunity for me to grow in holiness by having a bunch of children that like to rise at 5.30 a.m. So we're up early, chores are going, and we typically start morning basket between 8 and 9, having gotten breakfast and those morning chores out of the way. And we always start with morning devotions. We read from the liturgy, the feast of the day, morning prayers. There's typically a prayer that we're working on or a hymn that we're working on, and so that's part of that part of that initial time. And that's a that's sort of a steadfast, unmovable part of the morning basket. It all be, it begins right there. And from there, I typically schedule a variety throughout the week. So it's not static. 
Monday through Friday, it's varied. So we would start with some kind of kind of engaging beauty, some moment where we engage beauty, whether that's through art and we're enjoying a beautiful picture and we're talking about it, or we're reading about a composer and we're listening to his piece. Um, we're learning a folk song, or we're even or we're taking a nature walk because I typically peg nature walks to my morning basket just because I don't get them done if I don't put them there. So that moment, that first bit of morning basket is a time where I like to a block of time where I like to engage beauty in some way, and that varies. And then from there, I make a list at the beginning of the term of different read-alouds that I'd like to approach with my kids. And we'll probably talk more about this later about how I choose some of those, but I pick from that list, and I usually throughout the week have one, between one to four different read-alouds going at once. Maybe I'll read from Little House on the Prairie on Monday, and something else on Tuesday, and so on and so on. So it varies. And then we typically work on a little bit of memory work, poem that we're memorizing together, or I'm always uncovering these little holes that I'm missing. Like, I think I shared one time, I I realized that my nine-year-old didn't know the months of the year in order, so I just make a note to myself, and I put it in the morning basket, and so we begin to work together on the months of the year. But you could, I mean, you can learn the preamble to the Constitution. Um, The list is just endless here. The variety of things that you can put in for simple memory work pegs that the kids can work on. And that's it, usually, unless we're doing an art project or maybe a science project. And all in all, this varies depending, again, on whether there's a toddler involved or not, between an hour, an hour and a half each day. Okay. Yeah, that was my next question is how long does it last? Now, you've mentioned your toddler a few different times, and this is a question that I get a lot, is how do you do morning time with older children when there's a toddler underfoot? So do you have any tips for moms who have that toddler? Well, it's an exercise in patience, and that's for sure. And I can see how I've grown in it, not because I wanted to, because I was forced to. You sort of feel like you're on a treadmill at times. But toddlers really are, they're all about exploring their world. And so if you ask them to sit down for an hour and a half, of course, the net result is going to be frustration for everyone, someone. And so I try to anticipate a little of that and brainstorm how I can keep the toddler occupied in various ways. And that works. I have a strategy that kind of spans. And sometimes it's really just put the toddler on my hip and read aloud without holding the book in the other the other hand. I mean, it really is sometimes just that. But I like to keep a little basket, small, of things that the toddler doesn't have access to any other time. And I refresh that pretty often. I mean, this can be as simple as the measuring spoons from the kitchen drawer. But simple things that they don't typically have access to that would be delightful and intriguing to investigate. And if it will buy me 15 minutes, well, then I can probably get a good portion of a read-aloud done during that time. So I try to keep these sort of items at hand in one place, and I, if I notice that it's stale, I'll refresh them, and that doesn't take long with a toddler. And then another strategy is to ask an older child to come alongside and help out. And so right now my son is the oldest person in our, in our morning basket time, and he's 14, and so I'll ask him if the toddler is getting kind of unruly if he wouldn't mind picking her up and walking to the window and looking out the window while I'm reading aloud. And so there are a lot of different ways that quiet redirection can take place with a toddler so that you can keep morning basket rolling forward. But there are also times when you just have to accept that this is not the time 
to be reading aloud. Your toddler is melting down for whatever reason, and you need to stop. And I do that. I just set it aside and say, you know what, guys, we'll return to this at nap time. So morning basket can live in a variety of places during the day, one of which is nap time when there are toddlers around. Yeah, that's something great to remember is that just because it's called morning basket, if you can't get it all in in the morning, it's something that you could do when that toddler's sleeping as well. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because, I mean, as homeschool moms, we have to be flexible, if nothing else. And so became the morning basket because I originally envisioned that it would live in a basket and we'd do it in the morning. And I love, I love it when it works out so that we, we do complete everything in the morning because I think it's extraordinary to sort of spring from that common point of beauty and truth and goodness. And after that, everyone kind of works on their independent work. But keeping it real, that doesn't always happen if there's a toddler involved. And that's totally fine. It can be tea time after lunch. I actually love to read aloud while my kids are eating. There is nothing better than a captive audience of children who are all eating. So (laughs) you may have to just brainstorm it and get a little bit creative, especially when there are toddlers or multiple littles in the house. You mentioned that your daughter was fourth grade when you started doing your morning basket. And so was there any resistance on her part to this strange new thing that mom was having all of us do together? And then I know there's a probably a four or five year age range, four year age range between your two oldest. So was there resistance on her part to, oh, now I've got to go sit with these little kids and do this stuff mom's dreaming Mm -hmm. up? Well, not too much, honestly, because we had always, we, I mean, we had been a lifestyle of reading. We've always kind of this beautiful literary lifestyle. And so there wasn't too much resistance there. She thought it was a little unusual that we were all going to start out on the couch reading rather than she would just go grab her books. But okay, we'll roll with it and see what happens. And it was very simple in the beginning, honestly, because I didn't have this great wealth of knowledge and sharing that's out there now, which I think is a blessing and a curse at times because I love to share with other moms. I really love to share with other moms. But in that encouraging, I think it can also be a little bit overwhelming when sometimes as moms, we just have to kind of we look at the ideas and then we need to turn it all off and just go do something, even if it's really imperfect, and then let things grow from there. And so initially, things were really imperfect, but they were good. And they grew from there. And I think my daughter responded to that. It wasn't unusual that mom was reading aloud. It was just in a different place and a little bit different time of day. And it it seemed to grow pretty naturally out of that. Well, as someone who has teens, because my oldest is 10, what advice would you offer to somebody who maybe has a a 13 or 14 year old, maybe even a boy, and they're like, okay, I really want to do this morning basket, this morning time thing with my kids, but my oldest is being resistant to it. So as a mom of a a 14-year-old teen boy, what kind of advice would you give? There are a couple of things really that could be done. I actually, I'm a big believer in when those boys are teens, 12, 13 years old, it's time for dad to take over way more of the instructional time with that young man than me. I'm kind of a cheerleader. I encourage I get behind them, and to some extent, of course, you still have to discipline. I'm still in a position of authority. I'm still the mom, but I really think it's important for dad to get involved. So if I have a resistant young man, and I have had a resistant young man before in a variety of different ways, I get dad involved right out the gate. 
And then the second piece of advice would be to approach that young man privately, not in the middle of morning basket with a big eruption, although I'll raise my hand and say, I'm guilty, it's happened. It's better, it's more fruitful if you can take that young man aside and say, hey, here's what's going on, here's what I'd like to do, and this is why. What are your thoughts? And let them be honest, respectful, but honest. And if they're not thrilled about it, then I honestly, I wouldn't force them, mainly because I've seen the fruit an example, what an example does with the younger children. And it could be a bad example or it could be a good example. And because I value that so very much, I would not force a young man to sit in on morning basket. But I'll be honest, I've had an older team before that said, Mom, I'm done. I've been around the block here. We've, I've heard these read alouds. And so can I sit in on morning prayers and then go on and do my thing? Of course. Yes, I understand. That's fine. And then that same team who was a senior at the time, I believe, would confess that she was eavesdropping from up in her room to the read aloud. Because it was, so it has a life of its own, and it, it, will, it will plant a seed. And I would say to a parent of a reluctant teen, trust that the Holy Ghost can work with those seeds and try not to force too much. The key to this would be coming alongside, allowing Dad to help, and talking things out with the teen. Okay, great advice. See, I'm learning so much about even just teens in general. (laughs) So this is great. (laughs) Well, I know that one of your favorite things to do is to look at books and to evaluate books and choose really good books for your children's school and for your morning basket. So let's talk about some of the qualities that you look for in a book in order for it to make the cut to make it into your morning basket. Okay. Well, so you know that we follow Charlotte Mason's principles and philosophy. And so in doing that, I learned a lot, an extraordinary amount actually, about a living book and what a living book is. She placed a great deal of value on it. It was sort of the pivot upon which everything in her curriculum turned. It had to be a living book. And I began to understand what that meant in the early years as I began doing this with my younger children. I began to see the extraordinary value in a living book. It doesn't have to be flashy, but if it is living, which is to say it's typically written by an author or could be a group of authors, it could be a collection, it's written by an author who has a great deal of passion and understanding for his subject. And when that happens and a child reads that author, a relationship forms. The child steps inside the story and there's this extraordinary relationship that develops. The child meets these ideas, and that's going to be different from person to person. So I might read a book and start to really be able to pick up on some of the understories or backstories or symbolism or meaning. But my child just sees this great adventure that's taking place, and that's okay. And I think that's what I, what I love and value about a living book, and that is that it meets the child, it meets the person right where they are. and that is pretty extraordinary when you're talking about a morning basket or this common time, whatever you happen to call it, morning time. Um, That allows the books that you choose to be ageless. You're no longer looking in the second grade section of the curriculum choices. You're just looking for a great book. So it could be Columbus's Voyages. It could be Men of the Mississippi. It could be anything. But because it's living, because it's written by an author with a passion for his subject, it's going to touch each of those children. And so that would be the quality that I'm looking for. I'm looking for a living, worthy book, a good book, so that my children can read these good ideas and grow in them and eventually meet some great ideas and be able to enter this 
great grand conversation. Okay, I want to stop here and unpack this for a minute because no one has ever explained living book to me in quite that way before. And so as you're talking here, I'm making a parallel comparison between living book and scripture. You know, obviously the Bible is a living book and I'm seeing, so, you know, thinking about the Bible and how when you read a story in the Bible, let's say maybe the loaves and fishes story, then, you know, for, for a small child, this is a great story of Jesus doing a wonderful thing. And, you know, there's a little boy, maybe like him who has these loaves and has these fishes. And then a teen might take a few more things from that story. But then me as an adult, I can see much deeper layers of that story. I can see all of the symbolism and the meaning in that story. And so that's one of the things that's just really awesome about the Bible. But no one has explained a living book to me that way before. And that's exactly what you're saying a living book is, is that a child could take it on one level and enjoy that story and see kind of the the fun or the interesting tale in that story, whereas an adult might look at that story and be able to peel away the layers of it and see something much deeper. Exactly. And it, I mean, it's even just looking at the, the phrase living book, those two words, it implies that a seed is implanted and a seed can't germinate unless something is living. And so I mean, we could read something kind of dry, and I have before in Morning Basket with really deleterious effects. So you could can look at that in such a variety of ways. And then in your example, I mean, reading the Bible, a child, a young child sees things so literally. So all the stories that you're reading, my young children, they gather the literal meaning out of them. And it's interesting for them. But I've seen my older kids grow from just those stories they heard in their youth that were very literal and begin to make these connections across a variety of different books or ideas or an article they encounter or something someone said. And that's when I begin to see the impact of the fruit that something like Morning Basket has over the years. It's because the seed is planted first with a living book, a living idea, and it has an opportunity to grow to make the, allow these, this child to grow into the idea and make connections, which then furthers understanding. That's great. So one of my other questions for you was you have, you know, a pretty wide age range in your house. So how do you choose books to appeal to the entire group? And you've already answered that in that you choose a living book that can be read and enjoyed on many different levels. Exactly. I do tend to, I do actually have a ballpark range. I tend to shoot for the upper middle. I mean, the lower middle, excuse me. So I actually am looking for books that will stretch my young kids a little bit but will still be captivating to all of my other ages. And a living book really defies, it almost challenges you to walk away and say, hmm, I didn't enjoy that. That was too young for me. It's engaging because it's charming in its own essence. So I could read a biography of St. Joan of Arc to all my kids. And though the targeted age range might be fourth or fifth grade, they'll all really enjoy it. I'm learning so much. This is awesome. What are some of your favorite resources for choosing books for morning time? I try to think of this and because I have to go back and pretend as if I'm talking to myself when I had two kids and they were in elementary school and what did I use and how did I look for things? And I would say that I guess I began to build a family of resources that sort of grew over the years. 
there are three book resources that I could share with you that have just been steadfast friends over the years, and they're still on my shelf. Twelve years later, for Morning Basket, I still pull them off and use them. And that's probably Harp and Laurel Reese by Laura Barklist. And then Helen Ferris edited a compendium, a collection of poetry, favorite poems, old and new. And of course, Gladys Hunt's Honey for a Child Tart. So those were the three companions I had to start off with. And then I just began looking around for other people, that other like-minded friends that were walking this walk and that had found a great book. And I would take a look at it and I would read reviews. Some people have access to a great library. I actually don't here. But if you did have a great library, I'd check it out and pre-read, skim it, uh, look it over. You can get a, a sense of a book very, very quickly. Does it draw you in? Are you captivated by the dialogue? Are there great ideas there? Or does it seem as if things are kind of being force-fed to you in a, in a cardboard way almost, in an artificial way? Because there are books that parade as living books that I would say, I would challenge someone and say, is it really living or has someone dressed it up? But it's just a bunch of facts trying being handed to you in sort of fancy clothes. So I would begin to critique books and reading, and I would get to know a group of authors, and those would become friends, and I would look for more books by that author, authors that were similar, those sort of things. And so this big web of, again, relationships began to develop over the years for me so that I had this tremendous pool to pull from when looking for a book. Once you have decided, let's say you, you're sitting down, it's summertime, so you're sitting down okay. to plan out your morning basket for the following year. How do you go mm -hmm. about scheduling out these books that you found? Do you plan to read a certain amount of time each day, a certain number of pages? How do you do that? Well, I tend to look at the, I plan the individual kids' lessons first, because then I know sort of the period of history each of them is studying the books that they're using. And I, in fact, I don't think there's ever been a year that I didn't pull one or two books out of their lineup to use as morning basket reading. And I just found that that's always really, really worked well for us. I cover a lot of ground that way. It allows that child to read something else independently. And it, it, has, it introduces the other kids to that story at the same time. So they can go on reading. It just sort of increases our scope, if you will. So I plan out the individual plans first, and then I pull from that, and then I begin to map out a little bit of a, a morning basket plan. And it really is kind of a map, a guide, and I plan in terms of pages, but I have to look at the book. If it's a really meaty book, I might read only a page and a half because I have to keep in mind that I've got very wide spectrum of ages and attention spans, and I want to challenge the youngest but I want them to build their ability to give me their full attention. And I don't want to do that by reading five pages of Winston Churchill, for example. I want to do that by reading one page of Beatrix Potter and allowing them to be captivated and grow from there. So I have to look at the books in front of me in order to make that decision. And I just tend to kind of include it on my, on my paper map, on my schedule. It may be a page or it may just be a timeline. Maybe it's even a chapter of a book. And then I have to live it. I actually have to live it out for about a week and make notes to myself and adjust. I can see very quickly that I, my toddler is not going to make it through a chapter of Little House on the Prairie. So that needs to move to another point of the day or 
I read a little bit less, those sort of things. So there's so much that goes into that decision. But when planning it out, I'm typically thinking in terms of a page or a chapter if it's small. And I do want to keep it short. And that's how I get so much in in a day. I keep it very, very short for each selection. So I know that for your children's individual lessons that they do individual narrations. And you mentioned doing group narrations during your morning basket. Do you require that your children narrate everything that you read in morning basket? No, I wouldn't have enough time and day and then be able to get to everything else. So I typically, if we go back to our scenario where I'm planning out over the summer, sort of what we're going to read, and I've chosen three or four books that I'm going to cover in the first term of school here. And I'm looking at the books. I consider each of them and their value and what, they're, what they kind of bring to our family, their story. And I choose one to have the children narrate. I love to have my kids narrate the Little House on the Prairie books because it just covers so much. There's natural history. There's so many valuable lessons in terms of the family relationship, the manners that the children offer. And my kids get that. And I don't have to point it out to them. Those are the kind of things that they echo back from the story as part of their narration. So I set them up for the narration. I'll let them know at the beginning of the reading, okay, listen very carefully. I'm going to read this chapter, and I cannot wait to hear what you think of it. What will happen to Laura and Jack now? And I begin reading, and I finish the chapter, and I close the book very quietly. And let them think for a minute, nothing timed or planned. I just, I can see that they're still taking in that chapter. And then I ask them, I'm going to ask you one at a time, tell me what you thought of that story. What happened first? And I'll just, I'm engaged with the story. I'm wondering right alongside them. And that's sincere. It's not forced in any way. And my children just kind of spring from that. And so I'll go from one child to the next child. And I'm very careful. I do not allow interrupting at all during a narration. And so the kids learn from that example. And they each take away different things from the story. And it's always really interesting for me to see the individual personalities of my children and what each of them takes away from that story. My teen son is rather succinct, as one might imagine a teen boy would be. But he is really intuitive as well, and I really enjoy seeing what he intuits from a particular story. And that tends to inspire another child to offer something else. And so these group narrations, the back and forth of them, have been extraordinarily rich. And one of the big surprises for me, I never saw that coming when we started this. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, I know that this is a conception that I've had of narration, is kind of a, a stilted thing where one child is kind of parroting back a a chapter to you, but it sounds a lot like your group narrations are really more discussion, kind of, you know, discussion that mom doesn't allow anyone to interrupt, but discussion Mm -hmm. about the different aspects of what they've heard in the book. Correct. It, it, It is really. And I think that my children, and I would imagine all children really respond so much more to a parent that is wondering alongside of them about that particular story rather than someone that says, okay, we close the book and let's see, we, they drove from Kansas today and Mark, go, what did you read? What did we read? Tell me the first thing that happened. So it's a little bit drier and I mean, that could work in a pinch and of course you grow into these, these relationships as your children begin to narrate. But I learned that I needed to engage the story just as much as my children 
And so if I'm asking them to bring their full attention to this reading, I better be bringing mine as well, which is another reason, moms, you can't multitask when you do this. It has to be full attention right there, both on the reading and the children for the narration. And then in bringing that for my full attention, I can engage so much more. I'm enriched by this, this story. I'm wondering, too, what was it like to go across the stream when the wagon was nearly swept away? And what happened to Jack? We're all missing him. What will they do without him? And so I'm allowed to ask these questions, and they don't have to have answers. And I think that that's another rich part of the narration that you're sort of giving. There's a give and take between the parent and the child. He's telling you what he got out of the story. You can tell what you got out of the story, too. And you can just close the book right there and just let it be great and pick up tomorrow. Do you think in your telling what you got out of the story, too, that you're modeling for children who do not, you know, do not have a lot of experience with narration? Is that a good way to model for them? I absolutely think so. I think that you can model both your ability to organize the ideas that you got out of the story. I think it's great to model questions that don't have answers because I think our kids often think we put them on the spot. Okay, tell me what you thought of this story and they've got to spit something back out at you. So I think it's great for them to see that you have questions here and there's not an answer and that's okay. And I think it's wonderful for them, particularly my older students in the room that are there to set an example. They're enjoying the story as well. But it's great for my older students when I ask a little bit of a a deeper question, something with a little bit more meaning that, again, doesn't necessarily need an answer, or at least it doesn't need an answer today, but it almost invariably sparks a conversation down the road for that child. So I absolutely think that this modeling, modeling wonder, modeling an inquisitive, sincere inquisitiveness, a desire to know is very important for our children to see, and it begins to help them form questions which are so important for them as they continue their education. Education is all about wanting to know, to see truth, goodness, and beauty. And I have to be able to ask questions of something. I have to be able to think critically. So modeling that is very, very important. And that happens so often in our group narrations. Well, Jen, could you share with me one or two books that you would say were probably your favorite? Obviously, you're very fond of Little House and that series, but have there been others in your morning time that you would say were some of your favorite books? Maybe if somebody was just getting started with their own morning basket, a suggestion that would be a great living book for them to start with. Okay, that puts me on the spot. So I definitely would say those classics, The Little House on the Prairie. I love the Little Britches series, actually, of Alf Moody. Those are extraordinary read-alouds. The Chronicles of Narnia were huge hits for our family, and they were they make such wonderful read-alouds. You, these are it's just those classic books that you think, okay, of course, everyone should read this, so I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to open the cover and start reading. But they're the kind of books, it's the kind of writing that sweeps you away right alongside the children. And so I would definitely say those were some of our biggest, some of our most favorite books. Um, Bethlehem books, all of the series, uh, Cottage at Bantry Bay, the Hilda Van Stockham books, they're really just so extraordinary, so charming. Each of them is so different, but they captivate. Like a true book lover, I say, give me one or two, and you give me a whole list. I love it. No, it's great. <laughs> it's great, but you can always tell a book lover because they never give just one or two. <laughs> no, that's, that's such a hard challenge. 
Well, Jen has not only copious amounts of book recommendations and book lists and sample morning basket plans on her blog. She also has some wonderful resources that kind of walk you through how to create a considered book list of your own. And so we're going to link you up to those resources through the show notes of this podcast. And Jen, I just want to thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me. It's been delightful to chat about morning basket time. It's been great. Okay, for your basket bonus today, we have a handy little PDF download for you guys. And what we're including on the PDF, first of all, are links to Jen McIntosh's best blog posts about creating a considered book list for your family. So instead of retyping these instructions, what we're doing is we're simply providing a handy link for you to click over to her blog post anytime you want and to be able, it's a great meaty, long blog post and be able to see how you would create a book list for your children for morning time or even for individual children in your family. And then in addition to that, we've pulled out a few of Jen's favorite resources that she talked about here in the podcast, and then a few of our own favorite resources for where to go online or where to go in books to find some really great book lists to help you choose books to read to your kids. So that is your basket bonus, and you can find that by going to edsnapshots.com forward slash YMB6. And hey, I want to thank you guys so much for joining me here today as we chatted about one of my favorite subjects, books and morning time. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We will be back in a couple of weeks with another great interview. And until then, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has taken the time to leave ratings or reviews on iTunes. It really means a lot to us when you get over there and do that. And we sure do appreciate it. And also just to let you know that if you would like links to any of the book or anything else, resources that Jen and I talked about in today's show, including the basket bonus, you can get that by going to the show notes at edsnapshots.com forward slash YMB6. And we'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Until then, keep on seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool every day.